Hello and welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. It's December the 20th and today I'm joined by Jonathan Paris. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for joining me. You're welcome. So for background, Jonathan is a London-based political analyst and a former Middle East fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations in New York. He appears as a guest lecturer in various places and I recently heard him speak at the conference, the annual conference of the INSS in Tel Aviv. Jonathan is also a senior advisor to the Washington-based Chertoff Group. Uh, Jonathan, if we can start, I mean, today I'd say we're going to talk regionally about uh, a range of issues emanating from Iran and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, uh, and, and, and what effects that has on the Middle East. Perhaps we can start with the US focus. Um, I'd love yes. to hear your view on the US and NATO response so far to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what developments you anticipate. Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely uh, uh, surprising in a positive way that the U.S. and NATO have responded so well, so forcefully to the invasion. But to put it in perspective, uh, there were two other uh, prior invasions by Putin, one in 2008 of, of, of northern Georgia in the Caucasus, and then of 2014 when he took Crimea, very little reaction at the time. And so I would say he fooled the West once, he fooled the West twice, and then the third time the West had the intelligence and the CIA decided to release the fact that he was about to invade. To everybody's astonishment, he did invade on February 24th, and the rest is history. Zelensky, the uh, the uh, president of Ukraine, a former actor of Jewish origin, he rallied his people. He didn't fly out of Kiev in a helicopter to escape to the West. Um, and, and the Russians unbelievably uh, showed great ineptitude militarily, very poor planning. It was all Putin's idea. He didn't communicate ahead of time to his staff, especially his generals. They didn't prepare. And so once, once the U.S. and NATO realized that Ukraine was actually not going to disappear in two weeks, they took a whole different posture. They started arming the Ukrainians who they had been training since the Crimea invasion 2014, but they really got going. And, and there was a, an enormous uh, consensus between NATO, uh, Europe, the European countries like Germany and the United States. Uh, so everything seemed to go well and continues to this day to go well. The next question though is part B is what next? What next? Right. Is that what so you want me your, to answer? With, well, yeah. yeah, I suppose with your with your crystal ball, what do you uh, I mean? I mean, what's what do you uh, I suppose specifically from the U.S. and NATO perspective, what more could they be doing? Um, what do you anticipate their next steps could have to be? Let us not underestimate, Richard, what's at stake for the United States and the West in its quest for overall global stability. The, the conventional wisdom is that you know we can only fight one war at a time, so let's get this one done. And then we pivot to Asia, <clears throat> the so-called pivot to Asia that's been going on since the Obama administration. It hasn't quite worked that way, but I don't buy that. I think <clears throat> they're all inter interconnected. How you do in one, in one war affects how other adversaries look at you and how other allies look at you. For instance, after the withdrawal from Kabul, Mr. Biden looked woefully inept. And I think, and weak. And I think Putin, I'm talking about the Afghanistan withdrawal, 
right mm-hmm. after the administration took over uh, in, in 2020. And I, I think that I, I, I think that the lesson is that if you do well in, in the Ukraine war, you send a signal <clears throat> to uh, to your adversaries in China, in the Middle East to, you know, be careful. So it's, it, let's not underestimate the stakes. So what's going to happen? <clears throat> Look, it's, it's, it's easy to start a war. It's hard to have a real exit strategy. If you look at all the Gaza wars that Israel has gone through, the one that was most successful and shortest was the one where they really had a clear exit strategy. We do not really have a, an exit strategy. We had a let's respond and keep Ukraine from losing strategy. Do we really want Ukraine to win? I suppose so, but at, at what cost and, and at, at what time length? So the clock is ticking. The Republicans uh, in, in Congress are not eager to, to, to keep this going if it's hemorrhaging the, the, the economy. And, 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 and obviously it's consuming all the weapons stock in the West. So I don't know how much time we have, but let's not forget, um, Mr. Zelensky has agency here. He's not a puppet of the West. He, he's not somebody who's so dependent on the West that he has to do exactly what Macron or, or Biden say. Uh, and they can, they can be very clever with their own weapons. So we don't give them long range weapons. So they make their own long range weapons. Uh, we don't give them uh, kamikaze drones, which we'll get into a, a, in a second. So they make their own attack drones. So so let's not forget Zelensky is not going to be easy to coax into a negotiation. But the real obstacle, of course, is Vladimir Putin in Moscow. And that's where I just don't know. That's where my crystal ball fails. Well, you mentioned the, um, the, the, the Kamikami uh, drones. And I mean, I'd, I'd like to, to ask you what your assessment is on the, uh, on the Iranian role um, yeah. in, a, in, a, in assisting Russia. Yeah. The, look, uh, this was really the main theme of that um, uh, INSS conference you mentioned on November 21st, because at, in November is when we first discovered, to everybody's surprise, and I think the Israelis were surprised, that all of a sudden these Shahid uh, drones um, that that um, the Iran w- was producing was was showing up uh, over Kiev, uh, attacking. When you, when we say kamikaze, that's an allusion to the old Japanese uh, World War II pilots who would ram their planes into ships, uh, American ships. Well, these kamikaze drones, without any people piloting them, are able to come down and hit an electric station, a power station, uh, civilian targets. Uh, They're not very powerful. They're not ballistic missiles, but they are doing a lot of damage. So just as the Ukrainian were getting uh, unbelievable momentum in the eastern front in the Donbass area, recovering uh, uh, Karasan, all of a sudden you, you have this unsettling news that these kamikaze drones were just appearing and, and nobody could shoot them down. The Israelis know how to shoot them down. Uh, but, but you know, that's another question we'll get to. There was no defense. And at this time, there is a defense, but it's not 100%. So they're still getting through. On Monday, five of them got through in early morning Kiev and caused some damage. So that's what the drones are about. 
you think that that cooperation extends to uh, other areas beyond the uh, beyond the development and the deployment of the drones? And what do you think about the longer implications for Russian-Iranian cooperation? This is the this is the key question I think of the whole morning discussion, which is Iran now has a superpower patron. Um, what are the longer term implications? Well, uh, operationally, is it's, it's going to pose some big big problems for the U.S. For our, our allies, for Israel, because you know you have to understand, Iran is not providing these drones and and, and allegedly ballistic missiles are also on their way. These long longer range and more powerful ballistic missiles that the Iranians have in in, in hundreds, um, they're not going to do this for nothing. So what are they getting back in return? What are they going to get back? surface-to-air defense uh, systems like the S-400 that Russia has. Very good systems, by the way. The Russians are pretty good at surface-to-air. And that will make anybody trying to attack the nuclear uh, installations of Iran someday much more difficult, just because it'll be more difficult to penetrate the defenses. Um, And so I can go on and on. So operationally, Lots of of challenges for the West, but let's not forget the strategic opportunities. What are they? First, Europe rediscovers hard power. So for so many decades, Europe and particularly Germany have been living in this, uh, what uh, Shlomo Ben-Ami used to call this post-civilization illusion of, you know, no more war. You don't have these kind of wars that we're seeing now in the Ukraine. Uh, It's just that's a thing of the past. It's all about soft power and economic relations, and you get you do diplomacy through uh, economic relations, such as Germany and Russia, um, with the with the uh, Nord Stream and other other uh, gas deals, and you don't worry about hard power. Well, one country in in in, in the Middle East has never forgotten hard power because uh, you know because of where they are, and so. <clears throat> Israel is discovering that all of a sudden their weapon systems are very valuable to the Germans. The Germans are buying the UAVs that Israel has. They're even negotiating to get the Arrow system, which is a, a pretty sophisticated U.S.-Israeli anti-missile system. Um, and so I think that you have a real change. And, and I think the Europeans, and this is the United States too, they're, they're beginning to understand, particularly the left of center, the, the more liberal the, the more uh, because these are the people who are the most upset with the invasion and the atrocities that the Russians are, are committing. And all of a sudden you have the Iranian regime intruding into the into the uh, into this war, which has nothing to do with the Middle East. And combine that with the protests going on and the thuggish behavior of the Iranian regime toward the Iranian women who are taking off the hijab and protesting, seeking, uh, you know, freedom, freedom, life and, and women. The, the, the mantra there, you have these, this, all these events are coming together. And what it says is that, you know, Europe and, and the United States are beginning to realize that Iran is, is a pretty bad actor. It's not just about Israel's fetish over nuclear weapon threats and existential threats to Israel. It's, it's really about <clears throat> this regime is a real threat to the world. So I think that that's what's going on on, on the on the strategic opportunity front, which is quite interesting. And I think in the long run, that's more important than the uh, than the operational challenges, which can be overcome. 
Well, thanks. I mean, I'd like to get into some of the, the those those uh, domestic uh, protests in Iran um, in a, in a little bit. But I just wanted to come back on something else you mentioned, um, and that's the the, chi- the the role of China. Um, and perhaps, kind of, you could share your assessment on the uh, on the growing alliance between um, China, Russia, and Iran, um, and what you make of that. Well, uh, a couple months ago, I came up with this acronym because I was giving a talk on on Iran, China. Uh, and it's called the ICR, Iran, China, Russia. Uh, and I, I, I didn't know what to call the, the next word. Do you call it an alliance? Do you call it a partnership? But I think what it is, is it's, it's an imperfect triangle. Geometrically, it doesn't quite work. Uh, Iran's relations with China are far less strategic than uh, Russia's relations with Iran. But I think what you're seeing is as the great power rivalry increases, as the U.S. and 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 uh, and the West versus China keeps keeps getting starker and starker, more like almost like the Cold War again, you're going to find that the ICR countries come together to try to gain an advantage over the U.S. and the West. It's the glue. It's it's the enemy. The U.S. enemy is the glue that brings the ICR together, Iran, China, Russia. So whether whether it's a partnership, it's, it's irrelevant. It's the fact is that it's it's there precisely because the world is becoming uh, put into two camps. So what does this mean? It means that according to the Israeli national intelligence estimate, the first ever national intelligence estimate Israel has ever done, looking out 10 years, they argue that it may not be easy for Israel to maintain a geopolitical balance between the positive relations with the US, China, and Russia, as these three powers move from open competition to greater conflict. In other words, over the last 30 years, you saw this amazing um, regenerations of relations between Israel and, and, the, and the former Soviet Union, Russia. Uh, you saw this, uh, the beginning of diplomatic and, and very, very robust economic relations between Israel and China. And it's those relationships that Israel, and not only Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, India, the uh, Every, almost every country in the world that's not in the U.S. Or, or the West constellation would like to have relations with China, Russia, and the United States. It shouldn't be picking one or the other, but this is the collateral damage of the uh, ratcheting up of great power competition. So the ICR is the is the uh, Iran is the beneficiary, and and Israel and Saudi Arabia are the losers as these camps become more stark. I want thank you for that. I wonder if I can just take you back to the uh, to the Russia-Ukraine conflict for a moment and and if you could share your assessment on Israeli policy with regards to uh, to that conflict. Israel is really in a in a pickle here because they want to help the Ukraine. It's the moral thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's great for their image to be able to help Iran, to help the Ukrainians. Zelensky is not exactly uh, somebody who's alien to Israel. They've got a huge Ukrainian uh, immigrant population in Israel, but they've been very reluctant to give Ukraine offensive arms and even the kind of arms to defend themselves against the drones, which they have probably better than anybody else in the world. Uh, And what's the reason for that? Well, it's clear that you know, Russia may be inept militarily and a lot weaker than it was before this war began in February 24th, but Russia is still a superpower. And Russia is in Syria. Russia is 
controlling the Aliyah, the you know the the Jewish community in Russia, is vulnerable to uh, to to you know Stalinist type clampdowns. Um, not not that long ago. So I think that the sense of vulnerability, uh, how Putin could hurt you is what's uppermost. The other side of the argument is is to just have a transactional kind of policy without any kind of moral or or, or values based uh, dimension is uh, maybe lead to negative outcomes. Look at Germany. Germany, for the last 20 years plus, has had this sort of business interest above all, a purely transactional policy with Putin, and it's led to strategic failure. It's led to the failure to deter the invasion of Ukraine, an energy crisis, and huge costs to the economy, and now a whole new policy uh, known as, if I can pronounce it right, uh, So I, I think that it goes both ways, but I think I think Bibi is going to continue the Lapid-Bennett policy of not uh, supplying offensive arms but he's he's going to have to have to be very careful because the United States and and NATO are going to be somewhat impatient, uh, let alone Zelensky, if if the uh, Israelis don't help out more. So I w- thank you for that. I wanted to take you back to your to your U.S. roots and ask you a, a question based on kind of um, current uh, Biden's um, administration's um, foreign policy. I suppose both his uh, his general approach, but also. Uh, particularly with regard to the to the Middle East, um, do you do you have a do you think that the Biden administration has kind of has established a coherent doctrine that uh, that we could talk to? <clears throat> uh, yes and no. I think that events have really gone uh, in favor of the Biden administration, in favor of Mr. Biden himself. You know, this guy has been in the Senate ever since the 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 peak of the civil the the the, the Cold War. And so when when Putin invaded Ukraine, this was something that Biden, above all else, he was the Churchill. He was the man, the right man at the right in the right place at the right time. So on that, just on that one event, the response to the uh, the invasion of Ukraine, I think uh, Biden has has got an A plus, uh, the top marks, top marks. But if you look at if you really look analytically at it. If I could wear my analyst hat, um, he—it wasn't so much U.S. or Western policy that 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 got us here. It was, in a way, our weakness. I mentioned Kabul and the and the shambolic withdrawal from from, from there. Um, what about the fact that we didn't do anything to stop the the Chinese from rearming for the last thirty years, and now Japan has re, has doubled their defense budget? Well, they're doubling it because of 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 our weakness. What about the fact that um, we have these Abraham Accords in the Middle East? Well, those Abraham Accords came together because some of the Gulf countries like UAE and Bahrain realized that you can't count on the United States uh, when the chips are down. So it's better to to have some kind of direct relationship with the regional superpower Israel and hence the Abraham Accords from a strategic point of view. And again, in, in, in Germany, um, where is the U.S. NATO deterrent uh, against Putin? Uh, it wasn't there on February 24th. So Germany has to rearm. So all these good things are happening, shall we say, Abraham Accords, 
the German rearmament, the Japanese uh, uh, doubling their defense budget. I think these are good things, but they're not happening as a result of good policy from the United States. They're happening as a result of muddled and, and weakness of the United States. And not this is not Biden's fault. This goes all the way back to, to really, I could say, the, the end of the George W. Bush administration and, and the Obama team. Uh, thank you for that. And just, I mean, I suppose specifically on the, the top line issue as far as Israel is concerned, um, there doesn't seem to be any likely return to the uh, to the JCPOA, the uh, the Iranian nuclear uh, talks. Uh, do you think the US has a uh, has a plan B? And uh, and what, what what does that look like? Well, in a nutshell, this this is something I've been following, uh, I guess, forever. Um, way long, long before the JCPOA, U.S.-Israeli relations is, is something that, that you, know, uh, you know, one thinks about if you grow up in America and, and you've been to Israel for your first trip in 1966 on the eve of the 67 war. You think about these things. It's clear to me that the JCPOA uh, consumed an enormous amount of energy. And that the opportunity cost of spending all that energy trying to restore a deal that simply uh, has 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 is passed its sell date. In other words, the 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 benefits of going back to the JCPOA are very limited now, and the centrifuges and the fissile material and all the advances that I- I Iran has made since really um, the election period. Uh, be- just before Biden came in, but certainly after Biden came in, the Iranians have really uh, ratcheted up their uh, uranium enrichment program. It doesn't really make sense to try to put all that effort into basically giving Iran in sanctions relief $275 billion in the first year alone. That's what the benefit to Iran would, would be if they were to return to this deal. Doesn't make sense. So why not? Spend that time focusing on a plan B. How do you come up with a credible military um, deterrent to back up when Biden says we will not allow Iran to have nuclear weapons? Well, how do you back that up? I don't think Iran believes that uh, the U.S. will back that up. I don't think the Saudis believe it. Hence, they're hedging with China now. And I certainly don't think the United States, I mean, the Israelis uh, can count on that. Hence, the, the Israelis are developing their own uh, plan B, but it, it would make sense for the Israelis and the United States quietly to, to work on plan B. What would be the trigger? What would be the, the point at which Iran has gone so far in their weaponization program? They've already had the, they're already a threshold state. They're, they're a threshold nuclear power now. They have enough fissile material to make not one, but several bombs. But what would it take to 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 go all the way? And so I think we should hopefully we should see some some uh, collaboration there. Unfortunately, with the uh, religious Zionists in the BB uh, right wing government that's being formed in the, in the coming hours, I guess you know better than I. Uh, I think the United States uh, and Israel. Uh, their relations are now being consumed over what's happening in the West Bank, what's happening in judicial uh, changes and all these things that are quite concerning, but do not go to the heart of the strategic danger of a nuclear Iran. And so my fear is that we're going to start asking the wrong questions and not get the right answers. It's a bit, I mean, I, did, I wasn't expecting to, to discuss a domestic Israeli 
politics today on this yeah. call. Um, but, but it's funny, it's related to the fact that previous US administrations have tried to make that trade-off between Israel's policy uh, in the West Bank and kind of and movement on the on the Iranian issue. Is that yeah. still a, a, a relevant uh, um, prism of which to see those US Israeli talks? Or do you think they've moved on and learned the lessons? I, I think uh, they should be separate because whether or not you have religious Zionists in power or not, whether or not you have stability in the West Bank or chaos, the Iranians are still working on their game plan, their long-term game plan, which is to develop a nuclear weapon. It's their ticket to survival, the North Korea option, if you will. And it's particularly mm -hmm. important to them now when it's clear that their regime is under under pressure. I think we're going to get into that at the very end of this, this, uh, this podcast. So I think the trade-off is already implicitly happening. Um, and I, I, look, I don't want to get too much into this uh, subject, but the United States would like to have some leverage on Bibi. And this Bibi is very concerned, as is the security establishment of Israel, about the uh, Plan B. We need a Plan B. Where's your Plan B, United States? And the United States is going to say, look, we, we can sit together and talk about Plan B, but you've got to get your uh, act together on the West Bank, Jerusalem, and all these other hot point issues, okay? So there is this natural um, interrelationship, even though theoretically they should be kept separate. Um, so one of the issues you've alluded to, I suppose we should we should deal with it directly now. And there are some voices in Israel that say that uh, the U.S. kind of coming out for kind of uh, unequivocal support for the demonstrators um, in in, in, uh, in Iran, Iran would would kind of would give a headwind and kind of would have a would have a real um, influence and impact there on the ground. Um, do you see the U.S. doing that, and do you think it would really make a difference? Uh, again, I, I, can I give you another yes and no? I wish I could give you black and white answers. That's what we really no, no, we want. Don't, we, don't, we, don't need, we don't need black and white. We're very happy no. with, the, with the shades of gray and a bit of nuance. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the BICOM way, isn't it? Yeah, a little nuance, <laughs> right? Um, look, in a, nutshell, in a nutshell, the protesters are definitely seeking regime change. It's just not just about women's rights. This is about a 43-year-old Islamic regime. My whole adult life I've spent, you know, focusing on how we're going to get rid of this Islamic regime is finally beginning to happen. Beginning, I say. A few other things have to take place first. The, the, the demonstrations have to be, instead of 1,000 or 2,000, it has to be hundreds of thousands. Uh, you've got to see bigger strikes. You've got to see an alternative leadership to the regime. Um, but it's starting because clearly when you see these uh, young boys and girls running up and knocking off the turbans of these mullahs, it, it's such a symbolic show of profound disrespect for the very essence of the Islamic regime authority. They've lost their authority. They've lost the ideological battle. And this is an ideologically based regime. So I think it, it's over for them. It's just a matter of how, how many years it's going to take or, uh, or maybe months, but I think it's it's going to be more like you. So what can we do to help? Well, we can help on the communications. They shut off the Internet. The, the regime shuts off the Internet. We have ways we've discovered in the Ukraine, Starlinks uh, and other methods to keep uh, the Internet going. We can help, you know, communication. But fundamentally, it's it's going to be have to be done by the Iranian people themselves. This is their fight for freedom. And I think that we can only 
sort of stay in the background. Um, we can support them whenever possible, internationally, diplomatically. I think kicking them off the uh, Human Rights Council of the UN, the Iranians, um, they, they, I, I think it was the women's human rights, if I'm not mistaken, Richard. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was quite a victory that uh, that uh, Secretary of State Blinken led. And so we can do these symbolic things. Look, let me get back to the stakes, though. Uh, I'm not one of these people who say regime change, regime change, regime change. But I think there is a school of thought which I'm sympathetic to, which says that the Iranian nuclear uh, project is so far advanced and the U.S. and Western response is so, so, how should we say, pre-Ukraine war weak, uh, so unrobust that the only way the argument is from this quarter the only way that Iran is not going to go nuclear is if these demonstrators succeed in bringing down this regime. So we're on a, 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 a tick-tock, two timetables. One is the timetable, the end of the regime. I don't know when that's going to happen. It is going to happen. And the other is the tick-tock toward a, a nuclear weapon. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it looks like it's going to happen. Um, so it's, this is really a, a very important uh, uh, question. What happens in Iran internally has profound implications to global and regional security. Absolutely. Well, I think we'll, we'll leave it there, Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. And, uh, and to all our listeners, thank you very much. This is our last podcast of 2022. The issues that we've discussed today are surely to be on our agenda next next year as well and we hope to bring you more analysis uh, um in the weeks in the weeks ahead but for now thank you very much and uh, happy hanukkah and merry christmas to our listeners it was a pleasure richard thank you very much thank you very much jonathan